What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. TV, comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes, an evening with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic. Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg Post with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is an actor, writer, producer, film historian, and one of the most recognizable and respected film directors of the last five decades. As an actor, he's appeared in the film's opening night, 54, and infamous. TV shows include Law and Order, The Simpsons, How I Met Your Mother, and The Sopranos in the reoccurring role of therapist Elliot Gupferberg. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's also accomplished, he's an accomplished author of dozens of articles and several books on film criticism and history, including Pieces of Time, Who the Devil Made It, Who the Hell's In It, Fritz Lang in America, and Peter Bogdanovich Movie of the Week. He also enjoyed personal relationships with many of the screen legends he wrote about, including Cary Grant, Howard Hawks, Jimmy Stewart, Alfred Hitchcock, and Orson Welles. He's also been known for directing the acclaimed films like Paper Moon, What's Up Doc, Mask, Targets, directed by John Ford. They all laughed, St. Jack, and The Last Picture Show. And if that's not enough, he also happens to do a terrific impression of Walter Brennan. Please <laughs> welcome to the show one of our favorite filmmakers and raconteurs, Peter Bogdanovich. 
Thank you for that lovely introduction, Gottfried. <clears throat> I should do I should do Walter Brennan now, but I don't know if I can. I just ate. <laughs> well, sa- save it for later in the show, Peter. Okay. Yeah. A few years ago, I I was offered a part in a movie that was going to be the next uh, Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor comedy, and they had made a series of successful films. And it was going to be directed by Peter Bogdanovich. And I thought, you know, Wilder, Pryor, Bogdanovich, what could go wrong? And uh, tell us how the movie came together and what happened to it. Well, it really, uh, my agent sent me a script and uh, he was representing Gene Wilder. And he asked me to read it and see if I thought it'd be good for Gene. And I read it and I thought, well, I don't know if they'll make it with Gene, but if if uh, if we added uh, Richard Pryor to the to the package, maybe they'd be interested. Anyway, I spoke to uh, the head of the TriStar, I think it was, and uh, he said, "I'm not going to make a picture with Gene Wilder." I said, "What if I add Richard Pryor?" He said, well, "Then then we'll do it." So we got Richard, and <clears throat> the picture went forward, and um, the script needed a lot of work. It needed more work than I thought it did when we started shooting, but um, we were pressed to keep get going. And um, then Gene Wilder and I didn't get along, mainly because I, I devoted most of my energy to Richard Pryor because Richard was had MS and needed careful attention. But Gene got a little jealous, I think, and. Uh, Eventually, I think he he pretty much um, campaigned to have me fired and uh, succeeded. That was a film uh, called Another You, right? Yes, yeah. And they brought in another director. Unfortunately, luckily, they didn't use any of my footage. I say luckily because the picture turned out to be so bad that I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And they didn't use a foot of a film that I had made. Um. And the picture was a bomb, and uh, Gene and Richard never worked together again. Were you in fired? Fact, G- in fact, Gene hasn't worked since. Well, that's and, right. And and now you said there's some kind of law with the Directors Guild, or it's just a practice that if a director replaces another director, he calls him. That's correct. If 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 a director's replaced on a picture that's already started, that director who's replacing him has to call to discuss it with the director who's leaving. And so this fellow called me, and we talked, and I said, you know, the first director that was replaced in the history of movies was Eric von Stroheim on a picture called Merry-Go-Round at at Universal. And he was replaced by a director named... Rupert Julian, have you heard of him? And the, this director said, no, I haven't. I said, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Gilbert, you didn't end up in the finished product either. No, no. Okay. That was a terrible movie. Okay, so you have I, I that heard, in common. I heard in L.A. there was one theater that it was doing so badly, it was playing it once a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Pryor was extra nice to me. 
Oh, Richard was a d dreamboat. I loved him. He was wonderful. Mr. Director, he called me. <laughs> I, I, I loved Richard. I called him Ricardo. Yeah, he, he used to treat, he used to, Pryor would come up to me and act like he was a kid off the bus meeting his first big celebrity. That's I nice. Mean, he was, he couldn't have been nicer. He, he's very, very, he was very talented. Now, Peter, before you were a, a, a filmmaker, you actually started out as an actor studying under Stella Adler, which I don't think a lot of people know. I mean, you've, you've had a lot of acting roles. Yeah, I started, the, the only thing I ever studied formally in show business was, uh, was acting with Stella Adler, who was a great woman and became my sort of second mother because my mother died quite young. Mm -hmm. And Stella was, was just, just great. And she, she, she taught uh, acting in such an inclusive way that she almost was direct, teaching directing as well. Did acting make you want to direct, or did you did you kind of have a? I mean, you were a film buff from from an early age. Yeah, I think what made me want to direct was I didn't like auditioning. Mm -hmm. Gilbert thought, doesn't like auditioning yeah. either. <laughs> no, because auditioning, uh, reading the lines for somebody, uh, I, I found that it it isn't really a very good barometer of the actor's ability. Um. So I rarely read actors. I, I generally just talk to them for a while. Mm -hmm. And I've introduced a few people to the screen, and I never read any of them. Sybil Shepard, Tatum O'Neill, Madeline Kahn, Sandra Bullock, John Ritter. I, I just talk to them. I heard some actors are good at auditions, and they'll get the part, but they never improve beyond their audition. Yes, that's right. All you get is the audition. And that's, that's one of the reasons I don't think it's a very good process. So I didn't want to keep doing that, and I thought if I could direct, I can play all the parts in a way. So that's what happened. And you started directing theater first. Yeah, I wanted to direct movies, but I was living in New York, and uh, I thought if I directed a couple of plays, somebody would re re see them and say, oh, this guy should direct movies. Nobody did that, though. <laughs> right. Uh, so, so eventually... Uh, I was writing for Esquire and doing pieces in, about Hollywood people. And a friend of mine, a director, Jerry Lewis's friend, Frank Tashlin, came through New York and he said, do you want to direct theater or do you want to direct uh, movies? And I said, movies. He said, well, what, what are you doing living in New York? We make them in L.A. So within three, four months of that meeting, I, we moved to California with the express purpose of getting into the movies. And exactly a year and two days after we got there, I met Roger Corman, who got me into the movies. You met him at a screening, didn't you? It wasn't a screening. Was it, it was actually it was actually a performance of a, of a, of a movie, and you know you pay to get in. It wasn't a screening. I see. I see. And uh, it, it's coincidental that we both ended up going to the same performance of this French movie called Bas des Anges, Bay of Angels, uh, directed by Louis. Um, I think it was directed by. Uh, I can't remember who was directed. Oh, Jacques Demy. So Roger was sitting behind me and with him was somebody who knew somebody that I was with. And so we all got introduced and uh, Roger says, I've seen your stuff in Esquire. You write for Esquire, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, would you like to write for the movies? I said, yeah. And um, so that was the beginning of the relationship. 
Now, we, we had uh, Roger Corman on the podcast. And could you, do you remember some stories about his money-saving uh, <laughs> tricks? We had Roger and we had Joe Dante here, Peter. Well, I'm sure they both could tell you that Roger was tight, if is, is not the word. He was always very, didn't want to spend money. I said, what's the budget? He said, don't, there's no budget. Just spend as little as possible. <laughs> was, was Wild Angels the first project you worked on for Roger? Yes. And you did everything on that film, as I understand. Well, well, I, I did a lot, yeah, because uh, I, 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 I rewrote the script, first of all. He didn't like the, Roger didn't like the script, so he asked me if I would do a rewrite. He said, I'll pay you $300 and no credit. So I, I did it, of course, and uh, that's the script we shot. I, I rewrote about 85% of it. And I helped him with the casting because George Shakiris was going to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he dropped out toward the end and said it's, he, he thought it was uh, immoral, the script was immoral. So Roger said, what are we going to do now? I said, well, we've got Peter Fonda in a smaller role. Why don't we cap, maybe move Peter up? He said, well, let's have him come in. So Peter comes in, and he's wearing aviator glasses. And he sits down, and we're talking, talking, talking. And about half an hour into the meeting, he takes off his glasses and cleans them and then puts them back on again. And then he leaves. And Roger turns to me after he leaves and said, what do you think? I said, I said, I think if he keeps his glasses on, he can do it, but don't let him take his glasses off. <laughs> <laughs> because Peter, he doesn't he doesn't look the part with the glasses Peter on. Fonda so, and Nancy Sinatra yeah right and I actually directed I, Roger kept saying uh, we can't do this I can't shoot this the second unit will shoot this and I said who's going to direct the second unit I don't care who directs the second unit anybody can direct the second unit my secretary can direct the second unit you can direct the second unit <laughs> I said I'd like to direct the second unit alright so <laughs> I actually directed more than the second unit because Peter Fonda and Nancy Sinatra were in some a couple of scenes I did, and uh, and B- Bruce Dern. I shot a whole chase sequence with Bruce Dern. And uh, anyway, I, I did quite a bit of work on the picture. In interviews was, with you, it said you you've done everything. You did everything on that picture from from directing second unit to ordering lunch. Exactly, I did just about and making sure the laundry was done. <laughs> Now, I heard a story, I hope this is true, so I'll find out right now, that you were once in a movie being directed by Orson Welles. That's correct. Oh, is that the other side of the wind? Right. Yes, and I heard you had a scene where you had to run across the bridge to him. It was a rooftop. Okay. And he said, Peter, we're losing the light. Run over here and go right by camera. I said, okay, I will, but why am I running across? Why am I doing that? I'll tell you when you get here. (laughs) I love that. That's the director's, actor's motivation. I'll tell you when you get here. Speaking of Corman, we just have to go back a minute. I just want to talk a little bit about a movie that Gilbert and I are very fond of, and that's Targets. Mm -hmm. And which I guess Roger, Roger said you can direct. If you keep it under budget and you use Karloff, and and was the other third condition that you had to use the footage from the terror? Well, there were a lot of conditions. Mm-hmm. First of all, he said, "I Boris Karloff owes me two days' work. Now I want you to shoot twenty minutes with Karloff in two days. Uh, I, I, you can shoot twenty minutes in two days. I've shot whole pictures in two days." <laughs> 
<laughs> I love that too. Which he which he has. Yeah. So uh shoot twenty minutes with Karloff in two days and then take twenty minutes of Karloff footage from a picture we made called the Terra. It's not a very good picture, but you can find twenty minutes to take of Karloff out of that. Now I've got forty minutes of Karloff. You with me? I said, Yeah. Now, then shoot with some other actors for about 10 days, shoot another 40 minutes with other actors, and now I'll have an 80-minute Karloff film. You, 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 you willing to do that? <laughs> I, I, I said, uh, yeah, sure. So that was the beginning of that, of Targets. And um, then uh, we, we wrote a script we started to write a script that basically we, we decided, we couldn't decide what the hell to do because the terror, which we ran, was just awful. One of the worst movies ever made. Oh, yeah. Is that the one without the, without the plot? The one where Dick Miller just suddenly re- exposes the, reveals the entire plot at the end of the film? I think so. I, yeah. I believe, believe me, I don't remember it. Yeah. And, <laughs> we had Dick Miller here, too. And it makes less sense after he explains <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Well, it was it was horrible. Anyway, so we looked at it, and we couldn't figure out where we could even get five minutes. Well, maybe five minutes, but we certainly, certainly couldn't do twenty minutes. <laughs> and uh, besides, we didn't know what the hell to do with Boris. I mean, is he a heavy? What, what, what is he, what's he going to play? So he's in his seventies at that point, right? He was he was seventy nine. Seventy nine, yeah. yeah. So almost. Uh, what happened was. We had been in New York prior to that for just a weekend or something. We saw we spent some time with Harold Hayes, who was my editor at Esquire. He was the, the famous Harold Hayes. He was kind of the the uh, the best editor Esquire ever had. This is when Esquire was the magazine. Um, and and Harold said, you know, my, 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 what, what, what might make an interesting movie is this guy in Texas, Charles Whitman, who shot his mother and his wife and then went on to the University of Texas Tower and shot about 30 people. It was the first mass killing in, the, in, in modern times. And I said, I don't want to make a movie about that. God, that's depressing. <laughs> went to California, trying to figure out what the hell to do with Karloff. And then I realized one of the problems was that we couldn't really make Boris a heavy. He, he he was a nice old man, and we couldn't figure out what to how to make him a heavy, you know. So I was shaving one morning, and I was thinking, this goddamn picture is driving me crazy. You know what? I think I have a, a good idea for an opening. The picture opens in a projection room. The lights come up. The picture ends, the lights come up in the projection room, and sitting next to Boris Karloff is Roger Corman. He turns to Roger and he says, that is the worst movie ever made. <laughs> Monty Landis yeah. playing Roger Corman. Yeah, and then yeah. I thought to myself, wait a second, that's not a bad idea, because if, if Karloff is an actor and he's quitting the business because his kind of horror isn't horrible anymore, his kind of Victorian horror, that's an interesting plot point and then we bring this other kid this kid who just killed everybody that's modern horror really so maybe we contrast the two and tell the two stories separately and they meet up at the end something like that and um so we wrote we wrote a draft like that and uh 
Then I had a meeting with Sam Fuller, who was a friend of mine, Sammy Fuller, the director, sure. who, who came up with some brilliant ideas, and we incorporated those into the picture and showed the script to Roger. And Roger said, well, it's, it's one of the best scripts I've ever had to produce, but you can't possibly shoot Karloff in, in all that stuff with Karloff in two days. So you'll have to cut a lot of it out. I said, Roger, you just said it was a best, one of the best scripts you ever produced. If I cut things out, it's not going to be the best script anymore. Well, back and forth we went. Finally, Roger gave in and hired Karloff for another three days, paid him an extra three days. <laughs> that must have hurt him. <laughs> it, was, it was painful. <laughs> and uh, we, so we had Boris for five days. And we basically shot virtually half the picture in five days. And then uh, we had an additional uh, five, we had about 20, 20 more days, 19 more days to shoot other people. It's a very smart film. And you, 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 as you're watching, and I just rewatched it this weekend, as you're watching it you, and you're seeing these two parallel stories between the sniper and Karloff's story, you're wondering how these stories are going to merge. In the end, you, you're, worrying, you, you're wondering how is this going to come together right. and add up. And it's, it's done very well. Well, thank you. It was it was you know, it was a hard job to figure out how to do it. We shot it in twenty three days. Uh, I was in it because the fellow that I wrote the script for to play that my part uh, was going through psychological problems and he didn't want to leave New York. So I said, "Oh shit! I'll just play it myself, I guess." Well, you, your character is uh, lovingly Movie directed. Yeah, named after Sam Fuller, the character yeah, Sammy. Exactly, Sammy, yeah. Sammy Michaels. Yeah. And what was Boris Karloff like to work with? <clears throat> Wonderful. He was very a real pro, you know. And he, he had to, he had difficulty walking because he had he had braces on both his legs. He he had emphysema, so it was difficult for him to walk and talk at the same time. But he never complained, and he was wonderful, just wonderful to work with. I remember one funny instance. We had a scene on a bed where, where uh, uh, we both get drunk, and we pass out, and we end up on his bed in a hotel room, on, you know, on the top of the bed. And um, the script said, which I wrote, uh, Sammy wakes up, sees Karloff lying there and gets scared and then starts, gets, jumps, you know, from seeing Karloff and then starts to laugh. Well, it's very difficult to laugh on cue. So I did the thing a couple of times. We did a couple of takes and I, the laugh was shitty. I said, this is a shitty laugh. I'm sorry. And Boris turns to me and says, just because you wrote it that you laugh doesn't mean that you have to laugh. You could change it. And I said, yeah, maybe I should change it. Well, I wish you would. <laughs> <laughs> so I changed it and uh, didn't laugh, just sort of shook my head and whatever. I did something different. And it, and it worked fine. So Boris was directing me at that moment. And he was right. He was wonderful, wonderful man, wonderful man. Your drunk scene is fun in the picture. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was okay. I, I never was that happy with it, but it's, it works all right. 
And since Gilbert brought up Orson, we just we just have to ask you before we jump around. Like I said before we started, I mean, we do a lot of jumping around, but you had a long friendship with the great Orson Welles. And interestingly, this is what the seventy fifth anniversary of Citizen Kane this wow, month. This month. Wow, that's well, that's amazing. You're right. It's been thirty years since Orson died. Yeah, yeah. It, it was his hundred and first birthday two days ago. That's right. That's right. And and how did you guys uh, first meet? You wrote something about him that that flattered him, and well, but he didn't get in touch with you for years. Yeah, what what happened was, um, I, I had written a, I had done some program notes for various theaters in New York, particularly the New Yorker Theater on Eighty Eighth Street, which is gone now, and it was a revival house, and I wrote a program note on Orson's. Uh, movie of Othello and it was I said that it was the best Shakespeare film ever made which was absolutely counter to the common wisdom at that time they everybody thought Larry Olivier made the best Shakespeare films I thought they were sort of film theater whereas Orson's were movies anyway I wrote this very uh, forthcoming very very complimentary piece for, for a pro, as a program note and I get a call about a couple of weeks later from Richard Griffith, who was the curator of the Museum of Modern Art Film Library. And he calls me up and he says, we're doing a tribute, we're doing a, a, a retrospective about, of Orson Welles, the first retrospective in the United States. And we'd like to know if you would like to curate the exhibition and write the accompanying monograph. I said, why me, Dick? You usually do that kind of thing yourself. He says, well, I don't particularly like Orson Welles, he says, but we have a lot of members and, and, uh, and uh, cohorts in, in, uh, in Europe who, who think very highly of him, and we think our members would want to see a dead retrospective, so we, we want to do it, but we want somebody to write it who's partial to Welles, who's, who's on Welles' side, and uh, you obviously are from your program note on Othello. So I did the job, I got 50 bucks. Uh, for the whole job. <laughs> and um, we showed all his films, and, and the monograph, which I wrote, which was became my first publication, um, I sent a few copies of it to Europe, where Orson was shooting the, the trial or in a number of places in Europe. Didn't hear anything for seven years. Not a word. Seven years. <laughs> and by now, by the time I heard from him, I was in New York, uh, in, living in Los Angeles and had made targets. And I get a call in the middle of the afternoon. Hello, is Peter Bogdanovich there? I said, who's calling? This is Orson Welles. I said, wow, hi, how are you? He said, you have written the truest words ever published about me in English. And I said, really? He said, yes. What are you doing tomorrow? You want to have come over to the Polo Lounge, have a drink? I said, sure. So I went over, and he was there. And John Ford was Orson's favorite American filmmaker. And I had just published a book on a book of interviews with, with Ford. And I brought Orson a copy, which I gave him. And... Um, we had a wonderful time. He was the most disarming person I've ever met. He just, he just, you just felt after about 20 minutes, you felt like you could tell him anything. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was so 
disarmed by him that I had the, temer the temerity to say, you know, there's only one film of yours I don't li really like. Which one is that? He said, The Trial. And he says, I don't either. <laughs> and uh, I said, really? Wow, I thought we're really cooking with Crisco here. And uh, a few months, and anyway, as we're leaving the restaurant, he's got the John Ford book in his hand, and he flips through it, and he says, isn't it too bad you're such a big director now you can't do a little book like this about me? I said, I'd love to do a little book like this interview book with you. He said, fine, let's do it. And that was the beginning of a... Annoyed, uh, uh, the relationship and also the, the book, which took forever to do and wasn't published until seven years after he died. But uh, that was the beginning of the relationship. And he was a case of, he created like the greatest movie ever made in his 20s. And he never seemed to be able to follow it. So was he bitter or depressed or anything like that? No, he was always working hard, you know. Uh, I'll tell you a funny thing, though. About six months after the, the, the meeting I just uh, uh, told you about, we were, we were doing the taping of the book, and I said something slightly disparaging about the trial. And he says, I wish you'd stop saying that. I said, I thought you liked, I thought you didn't like the picture. No, I just said that to please you. <laughs> I, I, I like it very much. That's one of my favorite films. <laughs> but I, uh, I respect your opinion, and when you denigrate it, you diminish my small treasure. I said, oh, shit, Orson. God, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, it's fine. And from then on, he referred to it as that picture you hate. <laughs> I love that. And uh, we actually saw it. He said, the reason you didn't like it is perhaps you didn't realize the humor with which, with, with, with which it was intended. And so they had a screening of the, the trial at the left bank in Paris. And um, he invited me to go to it. And um, he said, so what, why are you going to the, what is what happening? He says, well, I'm getting, a, I'm getting a, an award and a check. I said, what's the check for, for accepting the award? I said, you're getting, paid to, you're getting paid to accept the award? He says, yes, you don't think I'd take an award without getting paid for it, do you? <laughs> so we went, and Jean Moreau presented him with an award. And we, we watched the movie together, and, and uh, well, he was sitting right next to me, so he starts laughing, sort of chuckling. And I then sitting next to him, I get the idea. Oh, this! I see he thinks this is funny, and it was funny when you sort of see it that way. <clears throat> and uh, but this French audience was on the right bank, actually, and uh, they were a little annoyed that we were la laughing. They turn around and say, "Shh!" <laughs> I thought it was very funny. The audience, French audience shushing Orson and me <laughs> because we were, we, we were laughing at uh, Orson Welles's version of Kafka. It's not supposed to be funny. But anyway, that's that's the story. And I heard Orson Welles one time told you that he saw Martin and Lewis in person. Yes, he did at the Copa, Copacabana. And he said people peed their pants. They were so funny. He said they were hilarious. He loved them. I love that uh, Orson, uh, this was this was something I found in my notes too, because Orson lived with you for a number of years, Peter. I, I love well, Often, off and on, yeah. come and go, but he stayed at, in my house, yeah. I love that he was a fan of Kojak, 
And the Dick Van Dyke, the original Dick Van Dyke show. Oh, he loved Kojak. He just loved it. <laughs> I love that. And he, he would he would he, he would go through my office, heading to the TV room, and he'd say, "Mary Tyler Moore is on." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> or or Dick Van Dyke is on or something. Or Kojak. I don't want to miss Kojak. Bill Persky will be happy to hear that, that Orson oh, was such yes. a fan of Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> Bill, Bill worked with him in The Man Who Came to Dinner. Mm-hmm. Talking about the 75th anniversary of, of Kane, and this is, uh, maybe this is a very naive question, but I want to I ask the expert. I mean, uh, in your opinion, what makes it so wonderful? Is it, is it Tolan's, in part Tolan's cinematography? Is it the fact that Orson was so young? And was able to make a film like this. Is it? Is it? Was it storytelling? A style of storytelling that it, that had never been seen before. I think. I think it's all of the above. Everything you mentioned. It's a. It's a very. Pardon me. It's a very unusual film. Mm-hmm. The way it's told, the flashback structure of how it's told, and all that. There'd been flashbacks before, but this was. Uh, very elaborate way of doing it. And uh, it's a very sophisticated script. The acting by a bunch of actors who'd never been in a movie, nobody'd been in a movie before. Uh, they were all brilliant. Joseph Cotton and Everett Sloan. And, Joe yeah. Cotton and yeah. Everett Sloan and Dorothy Cummings. Dorothy Cummings. George Kouluris and Anyway, um, and then the fact that or- Orson's performance in the movie... Mm-hmm. Is extraordinary. He goes from you know from a young man to twenty five year old man to ninety, and he and he does it so convincingly. He's brilliant in the movie. All the performances are great, and it's the only film of Orson's, only early film of Orson's that he really it was done exactly the way he wanted it to be. Right. There weren't any compromises, and he had actually asked Toland. To try to make to, to make everything sharp, the depth of field. In fact, it was Toland that came and wanted to work with him because he said you only can learn. Toland said to Orson, "You only learn about things from people who don't know anything about it." He said, "I'd like to watch you directing since you you're a brilliant director, but you've never done a movie." And for the first couple of weeks, Orson would was doing the lighting because in the theater he does the lighting. So he thought that he'd do it in the movies too. And somebody finally told him, you know, that's really Greg Tolan's job. And he was, he was horrified. And Tolan was furious at the guy for telling him because he said he was learning from Morrison's ideas. He was following in his footsteps and sort of cleaning it up a little bit, making it work. But he loved his ideas for, mm-hmm. for, for, for the lighting. The picture was a flop because of the blacklist. Um, some people told Hearst that it was about him, which it wasn't, by the way. It was about. about, about it wasn't really about Hearst. It right. was about. It was about Hearst and and about five or six other people, including a guy named McCormick, who is the one who built the Chicago Opera House for his girlfriend. That whole thing had nothing to do with Hearst. That was all McCormick. Nothing to do with Hearst and Marion Davies. Nothing to do. In the end. Interesting. Now, you made a movie about... uh, Oh, yeah. Gilbert and I were just talking about The Cat's Meow. Yeah. William Randolph Hearst and a story, a very... 
I had heard this story. It's a very chilling story, and you made it into a movie. First, tell tell us what the story was. Well, I first heard the story, believe it or not, from Orson Welles, who told me about it sometime in the 70s. He said that they were all on a yacht to, on the yacht together, and Hearst was jealous, believing that Marion was having an affair with Chaplin, who was on the yacht. And so he tried to, he tried to shoot Chaplin, kill Chaplin, but he managed to kill Thomas Ince instead. He missed, or he thought that he was shooting a Chaplin. It was dark, and he was shooting somebody else. And he shot Ince, who died subsequently. The story was hushed up. There was never an investigation. And interestingly enough, I said to Orson, did you ever consider using this episode in, your, in Citizen Kane? He said, yes, I did. But I cut it out. Why? He said, well, I didn't think Charlie Kane was a killer. <laughs> and he said, the irony is, Orson said, the irony is that if I'd kept it in, Hearst never would have said, that's me. He never would have sued or, 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 or blacklisted the picture because he wouldn't have wanted anybody to think it was him having shot somebody, you see. Anyway, <clears throat> I, I don't think the Hearst Corporation was very happy with the cat's meow. I never heard from them, but I don't think they were. <laughs> I would happy. imagine not. Uh, we were talking about how good Edward Herman was in the, in, in the, in oh, the part. He was, and... he, he was absolutely dead, dead on. Yeah. Good, it's a good film. And, and we they, like it both. They bring out also that other part of the story saying that the gossip queen, Luella Parsons, basically blackmailed him. Basically, yes. Because she observed the shooting. And so she had him over the barrel, you know, and got a very good contract out of it. And speaking of Orson, Peter, what's what's the latest? On, and a lot of people want to know about this, and it's been an ongoing saga. But what's the latest with uh, with the other side of the wind? That's the one I'm in. Yeah, uh, with John Houston playing right. the lead. I tell you, fellas, I wish I knew exactly what to tell you here. Uh, we've been trying to get it together for thirty years, because <clears throat> Orson one day at lunch turned to me absolutely out of the blue, and said. If anything ever happens to me, I want you to promise me you'll finish the picture. I said, Orson, why would you say such a thing? Nothing's going to happen to you. I know, I know, nothing's going to happen to me. But if it does, I want you to promise me you'll finish the picture. Well, of course I will, but okay, now we can change the subject. So, as I said, he died 30 years ago, and I've been trying to get it done ever since. I brought Frank Marshall, the producer, in, who mm -hmm. worked on the picture. and We're still trying to work out a deal with the couple of people who own the rights and it's just been very difficult but again as i've said many times over the past 30 years we're very close i'm hoping this time it'll turn out to be true and what do you think this is something that always drove me crazy uh how the american film institute after all these years of citizen kane being considered the greatest film ever made all of a sudden, they go, oh, no, we were wrong. It's Vertigo. Well, that wasn't the AFI. That was a, a, that was a, a poll taken by the uh, English magazine Sight and Sound. They do it every 10 years or something. And um, 
they poll a lot of critics around the world and so on. And this year, Vertigo displaced Kane, which had been on the top of the list for years. And uh, I think that's not correct. I, I think I like Vertigo, but I don't think it's Hitchcock's best film. I don't think it's even Hitchcock's best film. Which film do you uh, do you think is his best film? You got me curious now. Well, it's hard to say because there's there's a number of them mm-hmm. that are really all on the same level. Notorious. Yeah, it's great. Rear Window, North by Northwest. Those are my favorites. Do you like Frenzy? Not as much. Uh huh. It's good. I like it, but it's mm-hmm. not as much. Not as much. And you knew him. You knew uh, Hitchcock as well. You had you had a friendship with Hitchcock. Yes, and- I did. He was very nice to me. Hitch liked to talk about how he did things and how he would technically do a shot or whatever it was. He loved to talk about that. He was very professorial that way, and um, and fun to fun to be with. We had lunch numerous times at Universal. He always had the same lunch. New York steak and lettuce and tomato and co- black coffee. That was it. So I usually had the same thing. I said, just, I'll have whatever Hitch is having. <laughs> and um, we had some great talks. And I interviewed him, of course. I did a long, long interview with him, which is in the book, Who the Devil Yeah, we have it here with us. Yeah. A wonderful book that I'll take a moment to plug. Conversations with Legendary Film Directors. And I heard stories that they're saying that Hitchcock's wife had a lot Al- more to do Alma. with yeah. Alma Hitchcock. Yeah, she had a lot to do with his movies because she, they they married quite young. They met quite young, and she was his script girl and also co-writer on a lot of pictures. And he trusted her opinion very uh, strongly, and she was very much involved with the, with all the work that he did. And if I can get back to Kane one more time, how much you think? Uh, what was um, th- there was always an argument between who gets the credit of Wells or Mankiewicz? Well, uh, Pauline Kael wrote a very damaging piece in the New Yorker in which she said that Orson had stolen the credit; that actually uh, the, the entire script was written by Herman Mankiewicz. Which is absolutely not true. I, 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 uh, she did no research, by the way. She talked to one person only, Jack How- John Hausman, who hated Orson and um, wouldn't say anything positive about him. I uh, interviewed, I, I decided to do a, an answer to this piece for, in Esquire, and I interviewed a bunch of people, including. Charles Lederer, who's a good friend of Hearst's and a good friend of Orson's and who'd read the original draft. He said Orson vivified the script. He changed it quite a bit. Then I interviewed Orson's uh, secretary on the picture. And she said, if Mr. Wells didn't write the script, I'd like to know what all that typing I was doing was for because she retyped the script. You know, it's just, it's absurd. Orson rewrote Shakespeare. I mean, he didn't rewrite the dialogue, but he re- he cut it a certain way. He, he, to think that he wouldn't touch Herman Mankiewicz's material is pretty ridiculous. Uh, he rewrote the script and used Mankiewicz's stuff when he thought it was right. And he he told me that his one of his favorite things in the book in the movie 
is that description of Everett Sloan when he says he saw a woman across getting on a ferry and he says the day hasn't gone by that I didn't think of that woman and he never got her name or anything. And Orson looked at me, tears in his eyes, and said, and that was Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz wrote that, and it's my favorite thing in the picture. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so he was generous. He was quite generous. But this Pauline Kael, you see, wanted to prove that if Orson Welles was not really an auteur, she was against the auteur theory, so to speak. If he wasn't an auteur, maybe the whole thing is full of shit. Uh, that, you know, Interesting. That, that was what she was trying to do. That was the point she was trying to make. Mm -hmm. Now, years later, Woody Allen said, we're talking about Pauline and so on, and this incident. And uh, Woody says to me, well, you know, I was with her when she read that piece the first time, your piece in the, in the Esquire. I said, really, what happened? Well, she came out of the other room and she was white as a sheet. And she said, how am I going to answer this? And Woody said he told her, don't answer it. <laughs> which, which she didn't. It was good advice on Woody's part for her. But um, she was devastated by the piece. She also never gave me a good review again. Interesting. Yeah. And someone was on the show telling us a story that Mankiewicz once was uh, told to sign uh, a loyalty oath to America. Who told us that? Was it Ed Asner? I, I think, un unless that was Bob Wall, maybe. Uh -huh. no, I know that. I know that story. Yeah. That's, oh, that, yes. that, that, that's uh, not Herman Mankiewicz. That's Joseph jo L. Mankiewicz. Joseph L. What happened was that was during the during the blacklist period in Hollywood in the end of the forties, early fifties, where. Joe Mankiewicz was the president of the Directors Guild. And Cecil B. DeMille and a number of other right-wing directors had been pushing for the Directors Guild to have all of its members sign a loyalty oath. And Joe Mankiewicz was very much opposed to that idea. He didn't think that was the right thing to be doing. So things started appearing in the paper, you know, is Joe Mankiewicz a, a pinko? What's his problem? Why can't we have a loyalty oath? Hedda Hopper got into it and so on, Luella. Well, it became such an issue that they called a meeting of all the directors, uh, a big meeting, and all the directors came. And the most uh, respected director there was John Ford, who uh, sat in, a, in an aisle seat with his sneakers untied and uh, stains on his jacket and uh, chewing on a handkerchief and a cigar. And he didn't say a thing. And just C.B. DeMille made a big speech and... Um, Another director made a speech making jokes about these anti, uh, the people who were against the loyalty oath. And uh, this went on for a couple hours. Now, the thing was, they had a court stenographer there, so that if you wanted to speak, you had to raise your hand, 
say who you were and then speak. And this was all being kept on, uh, uh, you know, court stenographer, writing it all down. Well, this went on for a couple hours, and finally, everybody was wondering what John Ford would say, but he didn't say anything. Finally, he'd raised his hand, and they recognized him, and he said, my name's Jack Ford, I make westerns. <laughs> and he says, nobody in this room knows better what the American public wants than the C.B. DeMille, and he knows how to give it to them. And he looked at DeMille across the hall from me and he said, but I don't like you, CB, and I don't like what you've been saying here today. I move that we give Joe a vote of confidence, let's all go home and get some sleep. And that's what they did. Now that was told to me by Joe Mankiewicz himself, who said that he was on the verge of losing his position in Hollywood, and Jack saved him. And Sam Fuller was there, and he told me the exact same story. So I know it's true. I love that my name is Jack Ford. I make westerns. Yeah, that's an, <laughs> the understatement of the year. Yeah. You had a, and you had a friendship with Ford, too. I did, yeah. He liked me. You could tell he liked me because he insulted me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that in my notes. Tell, tell us a little bit about it. Oh, he was funny. He said, he gave Jesus you a hard Christ, time. Bogdanovich, is that all you can do is ask questions? Have you never even heard of the declarative sentence? <laughs> <laughs> we, we've talked about some of these films on, on this show, uh, Peter. We've talked about My Darling Clementine. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, what, what, are, what are some of the other films we've talked about, Ford films, on this show? Stagecoach. And we've also talked about Paper Moon. Well, Ford didn't direct that one. No, 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 no. But I'm going to segue, <laughs> which which I have to ask you about. And there's, of course, that's the, that the the story is that it was uh, the novel was uh, under a different title. You wanted to change the the title, and you called Orson Welles to ask his opinion. Well, what happened was the the novel was called Addie Prey, right? Which was the name of the little girl, and I didn't like the title. I thought it sounded like a a, a snake, you know, I adder. Or something. So I, I said, I don't like the title. And when I, whenever I do a, a period picture, uh, a period picture, I always go to a, a billboard or variety and look up what songs were popular at that period. And because I didn't use a score, I used music from records. And uh, one of the songs that was very popular in that period, early 30s, was a song called It's Only a Paper Moon. It's only a paper moon flying over a cardboard sea. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. That's not the tune, but it's the idea. <laughs> Close enough. Uh, and it was written by Dorothy Parker and Yip Harburg and a few other important names. And I, I just, the words paper moon jumped out at me. I said, that's, that's a good title. Well, I went to Paramount. I said, I'd like to call the picture Paper Moon. Why? Well, I just think it's a good title, and it used the song in the picture and so on. Peter, the book was a bestseller. I said, really? How many copies did it sell? 100,000 copies in hardcover. I said, wow, if we get 100,000 people to see the picture, we'll have a real big hit. All right, all right, look, we don't want to argue with you. We're just going to keep it Addie Prey for the time being. So I called Orson. I thought, I'm, I'm very frustrated. I think it's a great title. I call Orson, and he's in Rome cutting. And the connection was very bad, so I had to yell, Orson, can you hear me? Yes, barely. What do you want? I'm busy. Uh, 
just a second. What do you think of this title? Paper Moon. Pause. That title is so good, you don't even need to make the picture. Just release the title. (laughs) (laughs) That's a favorite story. (laughs) It's a sweet film, Peter. I love that film. So I went to the writer, Alvin Sargent, and I said, Alvin, you remember those cardboard moons that they have in carnivals, sequence carnivals, and you sit in the moon and they take your picture? He says, yeah. I said, well, we've got a carnival in the picture anyway, so let's just add a scene where Tatum goes and sits in the moon. And she wants him to sit in the moon, he doesn't, whatever. We'll pay it off later in the picture. He says, why are we doing this? I said, so we can call the fucking thing Paper Moon and the studio won't say why. That's why. <laughs> and that's why we did it. Is it true Madeline Kahn had a line in the film that she that she was uncomfortable saying? Yeah. <laughs> what happened was we were in the first reading of the script. We had a reading of the script. And there was a line that Ta- uh that uh, Madeline had which and she said it to Tatum's character. The line was So how, so what do you say? So what do you say, honey? Just for a little while, let Trixie sit up front with her big tits. Because uh, they were arguing about who would sit in the front of the car. And uh, when we were reading this in, in a uh, table read, we got to that line, and she said, I'm not going to say that. I said, okay, what do you want to say? Uh, breasts or big ones or something? I said, Okay. Never mentioned it again. The day we were shooting, we shot Tatum first, I think. I can't remember now. The the point is there were two angles on Madeline that we did. And we did the first one where that line is not in that first angle. And then we set up for the second angle in which that line does appear. So we're all ready to shoot. And I went over to her just before we were going to make the first take. And I whispered in her ear, say tits once. Just try it. Say tits once. <laughs> just try, try it. And I walked away. And I walked away. And I, I didn't know whether she, what she was going to do. So we get to the line. And she says it. And then if you see the picture again, you'll see she does a kind of an embarrassed laugh afterward almost like her face went Uh red. And it is the moment, one of the great moments in the picture. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. she said it, and then she got embarrassed. (laughs) And and it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful moment. What what ever happened to Ryan O'Neill, who was one of the biggest stars back then? Mm -hmm. Well, I can't say exactly what happened to him, but he, he was not his, he was his own worst enemy. In many ways. I think Paper Moon's his best performance. It's a hell of a performance, and it's a good-looking film, too, Paper Moon. L- Laszlo Kovacs shot yeah, it in black, black sure. and white. Yeah, it was very, very well done. Sure. Can I ask you also about Nickelodeon, which yeah. I just which I just watched this weekend, and I, I was surprised to see you released a director's cut, a black and white version. Did you see it in black and white? I did not. I didn't know. I, well, unfortunately, I watched it in color, not realizing at the time there was a black and white version, which I oh, realized when I got deeper should, into my you, notes. You should, you should see it, yeah. Uh, I fought for 30 years to get that released in black and white. We were supposed to shoot it in black and white because it's a black and white period. This is 1915. Uh, color is just not right. And it just looks like a 
movie made in the 70s. Uh, I had to fight like the devil with the studio head, and he wouldn't listen to me. And years later, I finally per persuaded them to... You see, what happened was I was pissed off when we started shooting it, and I said to Laszlo, look, light it for black and white, because one day we're going to print it in black and white. So he did. He lit it as though it was black and white. <laughs> um, he didn't rely on the color to give the separations. He actually lit the separations as you do with color with uh, black and white. And um, so when it was printed in black and white, uh, it looked great. And I added a few things too. Also, um, that was a very compromised film. I wasn't happy with it. So. The black and white helps a lot. It has a lot of great moments and, and, and great performances. Who is the Brian Keith character Cobb based on? Is he just kind of a just an amalgam? Uh, kind of a uh, amalgam of a bunch of different studio uh -huh. people. Uh -huh. yeah. It's a fun picture. And in the last picture show, I heard that you had a chance of getting Jimmy Stewart, but you didn't want him for that. Well, it's not that I had a chance. I never discussed it with Jimmy, but I, I was friendly with him because I had done a piece, a profile of, of him in Esquire, which he liked very much. He sent me a lovely letter thanking me. And um, we were talking about casting it. This was the leading character, the, the character named Sam the Lion, who's kind of the the moral focus of the picture or the, the town. And um, I never went to Jimmy because I thought, you know, we've got a small town in Texas. It looks very run down. And sitting in the saloon is Jimmy Stewart. I just thought it didn't work. As the audience would say, what's, Jim, what's a movie star doing down there? So we didn't do it. I didn't even ask him. And instead, I had an idea that Ben Johnson would be great. And because I had met Ben while... Ford was shooting Cheyenne Autumn in the late 60s, uh, no, in 63. And um, I met, I met uh, Ben on that picture. And it suddenly hit me, my God, he'd be great. And I got in touch with him and sent him the script, and he turned it down. Oh, it's too many words, Pete, too many words. I said, but it's a great part for you, Ben. He said, no, no, Pete, it's too many words. Also, it's a dirty picture, and I might want my mother to see it, and I can't show it to my mother. No, I don't, I don't want to do it. It's too many words, Pete. Oh, shit. So um, I worked on him a little bit, but he wouldn't budge. So I called Ford, and I said, listen, I got a really good part for, for old Ben, but he, he, he says it's too many words. Ford says, oh, he always says that. When we were shooting Yellow Ribbon... He'd come on the set and he'd say to the script girl, any words for me today? And if she said yes, he'd sulk. And she, <laughs> Strange. And if she said no, you just have to ride the horse, he'd be happy. Where is old Ben? I said, well, he's in Tucson. Give me his number, I'll call him. Would you, Jack? Yeah, yeah, I'll call him, I'll call him. So 15 minutes go by and Jack uh, Ford calls me and says, he'll do it. I said to him, Jesus Christ, Ben, Peter's got a good part for you. What do you want to do, play Duke sidekick your whole life? Do the picture. He'll do it. I hang up the phone. I said, thank you so much, and I hang up the phone. 
About 10 minutes later, the phone rings. It's, it's my secretary. It's Ben Johnson. I answer the phone. Hello, Ben? Long pause. You put the old man on me. <laughs> he says, you put the old man on me. I said, well, Ben, I really want you to do this picture. Oh, Jesus, Pete. There's too many goddamn words in this and that. <laughs> he still wasn't doing the pictures. Finally, he came to my office about a week later. I'll never forget, he had the script open in front of him. And finally, I, I worked on him, and I said, Ben, if you do this picture, you could win the Academy Award. He got so annoyed. He said, why do you say a thing like that? I said, I just feel that you in this part could win an Oscar. Oh, Jesus. Finally, he slammed the script shut, and he said, oh, all right, I'll do the goddamn thing. And that's how he got the picture, and that's how he got the Oscar, too. Yeah, it's a great story. The rest is history. Yeah. Cloris Leachman won, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I heard John Ford and John Wayne never actually got along. No, they were friendly. They were? They were friendly. Duke was uh, kind of like his son. He picked on him all the time, but he loved him. If he picks on you, it means he likes you. The more he picks on you, the more he likes you. <laughs> and, and your friends, you were friends with someone Frank and I have brought up a bunch of times in the show, and that's Sidney Lamette. I didn't know Sidney very well, but I knew him a little bit. I interviewed him for the book. And also, I acted for him in a live TV show called 50 Grand, based on a Hemingway story. I just had a bit part. But that's where I met him. And then uh, a small magazine called Film Quarterly asked me to do an interview with him for their magazine. And that was actually the first director interview I did in my career. Is that in the book? Is that in Who the Devil Made It? Yeah, it's the last yeah. interview in there. Yeah, yeah. Terrific book that, that I think people should know about. Thank you. It was a it was a bestseller, and uh, we organized it in such a way that the interviews, the order of the interviews is the order in which the directors were born, and so it generally generally speaking, it, it it's pretty much when they entered the business also. Oh, interesting. So if, if you read it from beginning to end, you're getting a really a panoramic view of the early days the, of the making of, of movies. There's so much good stuff in there. I was telling Gilbert, I didn't realize that McCary did not enjoy working with the Marx Brothers on Duck Soup. No, he didn't. <laughs> this he didn't a, this like, I he said they were, they were a pain in the neck, he said. <laughs> said they were, he never managed to get them together all at one time. Yeah, he said it was hard to get them all in the same room. <laughs> McCary yeah, was funny. I didn't know that Capra was a, was a, sort of a, a hero to McCary. Yeah, too. he loved it. That's he in the book. Him. Yeah. Uh, Capra isn't interviewed in the book. No, no, I he, mean the, the little story about how. Yeah, uh, I know. He, he had he, Capra had done a autobiography that was quite popular called "The Name Above the Title," and I, I, I didn't think I could get much more out of him. We saw you in a Cavett episode that's on YouTube, Peter. With uh, that, you know the one I'm referring to, and it's fascinating because it's you, Robert Altman, Mel Brooks, and Frank Capra. Yeah, that, you know it's very funny because I, I ran into. Uh, Dick Cavett somewhere at a party for The Sopranos or something, and and he said that we, that they had put on DVD some of the interviews, and I thought to myself, well, mine's no good because I didn't speak at all. I just sat there and listened to everybody. I never spoke. <laughs> I saw the goddamn thing. I, I spoke more than anybody. You did. <laughs> you sure did. 
to the point where I was even interviewing Frank Capra instead of letting Cabot do it, I was doing it. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how the mind plays tricks on you. I thought I hadn't spoken at all. And you worked with an actor who I, I worked with in, uh, in the Problem Child movies, and that was John Ritter. What was your experience like with him? Uh, John Ritter was one of the most talented and kindest people I've ever met. I loved him dearly. He was a good friend. He was an extraordinary friend to me, actually, in a number of times when I really needed help. He, he was there. And um, I miss him every day. He was a great, great human being and a very, very big talent. And to this day, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't cast him in the lead in the last, in the last picture show because I had originally planned to cast him in the lead and I got talked out of it by an agent. Interesting. And I used, and I used Tim Bottoms, who's very good, but he's very good in the picture. But John would have had a better career if he'd done that. He turns up in Nickelodeon, and of course they all laughed. Yeah, Ritter, Ritter you Nickel used him a couple of times. I used him a few times. Uh, um, Nickelodeon was his first big picture. And while we were shooting... He said, I got to go to New York next, uh, I got to go to L.A. next week. We were shooting in Modesto, California. He says, I'm doing an audition for a s series called Three's Company. I said, oh, Jesus, don't do that. And I, I, won't, I won't be able to use you. He said, no, I'm never going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> and Gilbert, you like John Ritter, too, very much, oh, didn't you? Oh, yeah. He, he was a really sweet guy to work with. He was adorable, and he was also extraordinarily gifted comic actor in terms of how he moved. He moved beautifully. He really knew how to handle himself physically. He I remember the last time running into John Ritter, and he was like three times my height, and he saw me and had a big smile on his face, and he put his arms out, and we went, hey, buddy, and yeah. gave me a big hug. I liked him in that Blake Edwards picture, Skin Deep. Wonderful. Blake, Blake used him because he'd seen him and they all laughed. Uh-huh. And we don't uh, want to turn you into Rich Little right now. But we have to name some celebrities and you have to do your impressions. Uh, okay. Well, I'll tell you one story. I was talking to Jimmy Stewart one time and, uh, how you feeling, Jimmy? Well, Peter, I'll tell you. After 70, it's all... Patch, patch, patch. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the Walter Brennan that I heard you do? A wonderful Walter Brennan I heard you do in an interview. You, you have that wrong. one? You, you was wrong, Mr. Dunson. You was wrong. That's about it. <laughs> I like it. And, and you do a Jerry Lewis? Oh, yeah, I can do Jerry. I got to be in a good mood, but I can do Jerry. <laughs> you, you, Gilbert does a little Jerry himself. You, you and Jerry Lewis have been friends a long time, Peter. Over 50 years. How about that? I met, I met him in 61. He says to me, he says to me one time, when I came to California, I was broke. And um, we had a really old car. We had a, this, I came out in 1960, permanently in 64. And we had a... 1952, 1952 or 51, Ford convertible, spray painted black. It was yellow and it was a mess. 
And we used to go visit Jerry on St. Cloud Road. And uh, one day he says to me, he says, I don't want to see that goddamn piece of shit car of yours in my driveway anymore. <laughs> That's a good impression. <laughs> I, I said, thanks. What am I supposed to do? He said, take one of my cars. I'll, you can borrow my Mustang. I, I, Jerry, I can't take your Mustang. Why not? I got four of them. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so he gave me the car for, for six or seven months. We drove the new, brand new Mustangs. First year they came out. Yeah, and Jerry. Jerry was. He could be. You know, he's very funny. Just turned ninety. Yeah. Yeah. I, just, I spoke to him the other day. Yeah. yeah. You do. You, you did a, a, some of these impressions in a show, didn't you? Uh, Sacred Monsters. Yeah, I've called it a number of things. Sacred Monsters. The Who the Devil Made It. And so yeah. I, it's a it's a one man show. And I have clips from seven, uh, seven clips, and I talk for about an hour. I looked and, like crazy to find some version of it online, which doesn't exist. I wanted no, to see, see you doing it, these impressions. It doesn't exist, no. I did Hitchcock, and I, I remember in the 70s, I was living with Sybil Shepherd, and we, we got very bad press. There was a period where you couldn't open a magazine or a newspaper without seeing some nasty crack about Sybil and me. So Cary Grant, who was a friend for years, whom I'd met through Clifford Odets, calls me up. Peter, will you for Christ's sake stop telling people you're happy? <laughs> and stop telling them you're in love. <laughs> That's great. Why, Cary? Because they're not happy and they're not in love. Well, I thought all the world loves a lover. No, don't you believe it. Let me tell you something, Peter. People do not like beautiful people. That resonates. Wow. Yeah. And another, and another terrific impression, I might say, Peter. Oh, he was great. Carrie was great. And what was your opinion on Jerry Lewis as a filmmaker? Well, he made some good pictures. I thought Nutty Professor was a very good picture. And The Bellboy was good. And he did great stuff in The Errand Boy and... Jerry was was a good director. He could he he, um, he knew what he was doing. He was I liked him as a director. There's so much we could ask you, Peter. I wrote down a list of uh, all the character actors, some of the great character actors you've worked with, like M. Emmett Walsh and and Kenneth Mars and Austin Pendleton, who Gilbert and I love. Austin's great. He's wonderful to work with. He's very funny. Kenny Mars was hysterical in What's Up, Doc. Was he loosely based on the, 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 the there's a rumor, the theater critic John Simon? Uh, not so loosely. <laughs> okay, directly based. I said to him, I said, I want you to do John Simon. We called the character Hugh Simon. And uh, I said, I want you to, you can see um, John Simon on some talk show. He's on Cabot or mm -hmm. somebody. I said, he's a real arrogant, pretentious guy. Uh, but I want you to do him. So he was doing, he was doing Johnson. And then John Simon collars me in New York after the picture comes out. He says, I hope next time you do somebody, you have an actor play me, you get a better actor. <laughs> <laughs> he even does John Simon. <laughs> now, I remember being on the set of Another You, and you were directing a scene, and this always stuck with me. In, in, you had just directed it, and then I was just standing there watching, and you turned to me and you said, you seem to to love the creative process of film. 
I remember you had said that to me, and that always stuck with me. Huh. Well, probably because you, you looked interested. You didn't go to your trailer. <laughs> <laughs> He's a big film buff. Yeah, I know. I know you are. Peter, we'll let you we'll let you get on uh, with things, but we did. I did want to ask you. I was touched by something you said in an interview. A couple of things. You said there are no movie stars anymore, not like the old days. And 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 why do you think that is? Well, uh, there's no studio system to 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 uh, help stars become stars. Mm-hmm. There, there's no system. It's it's one movie at a time. You know, in those in the early days, in, in the golden age of Hollywood, so to speak. You had personalities. They, 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 they looked for people. I said somewhere. I said they looked for people that were attractive and different. So who talks like Jimmy Stewart? Nobody. Uh, going down, all that stuff he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a movie star, and he talked different. Cary Grant talks different. Jimmy Cagney. All right, you guys. And you bogey, know, and bogey. Yeah, I yeah. can't do. I can't do him as well. Of all the gin joints and all the towns and all. Anyway, I can't do bogey. <laughs> uh, but 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 he he today. You know that's why Rich Little is out of work because the, the, who do you do me Tom Hanks, right? Or George Clooney, or George Clooney or Tom right. uh, Cruise. You, you can't. There's no there's, there's no voice there. Now I heard Tom uh, that. Rich Little was in an Orson Welles picture. Yes, that's the part I took. He, Orson fired him and ca- ca- oh, on the other side of the me. wind. Wow, interesting. <laughs> what's what's weird is here. Orson wrote the character in the other side of the wind, somewhat based on me because the guy had had three big hits in a row and he did impressions. And that's why he hired Rich Little to do the impressions. And a few months went by and I called Orson, he was in Arizona. And I said, how's it going? And he says, terrible. I said, what do you, what's the matter? He said, I just had to let an actor go and it cost me 25 Gs and I don't have that kind of bread. Well, who well, who'd you let go? Rich Little. Why? He can't act. Oh, Jesus, Orson. <laughs> Did you shoot a lot of stuff? I shot everything with him, and he can't, I can't use it. Oh, that's terrible. What are you going to do? I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm very upset. I said, well, uh, couldn't I play it? Long pause. Why, it never occurred to me. I said, it never occurred to you. The guy, the, the guy had three hits in a row. He does impressions. He's like me. It never occurred to you? He said, well, you have that other part. I, he'd cast me in a very small, uh, another part, which was a kind of a funny part. But it was not a big part. It was a, it was a journalist who was, who, who he wanted me to talk like Jerry Lewis, but ask questions like, do you believe that the cinema is a phallus? You know, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> like Jerry Lewis. So I said, that, that's just a small bit. You could cast somebody else in that. And he says, well, my God, you, you could do it. Would you do it? I said, sure. He said, well, when could you come here? 
I said, when do you want me? He says, as soon as possible. I said, I can come tomorrow, a day after tomorrow. He said, oh, that'd be fantastic. And that's how I got the part. Cast myself. I love it. And and one story before you go, you said your mother had seen Rebel Without a Cause, and you asked her her opinion. Yeah, that was interesting. She, she saw Rebel Without a Cause before I had seen it. And she said that she didn't like it. And I said, what's the matter with it? She said, I think it's a dangerous film. I said, why do you say that? She said, because it makes every single teenager, all the young, all the kids in the picture are poor, misunderstood kids. And there isn't one adult in the entire film that you could say that's an intelligent, serious, responsible adult. And all you've got is a bunch of kids who are feeling sorry for themselves and and uh, good actors, but it's a dangerous film because it, it will encourage teenagers to ignore the parental figures. And there is no parental figure in the picture that is uh, good, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, it's a good point. It, it, it did encourage in a slew of juvenile, misunderstood juvenile delinquent pictures. There's a lot of them. And um, interestingly enough, the tragic aspect of that is that the three leading people in the picture, Natalie, Wood, Jimmy uh, Dean, and Sal Minio, all died young, violent, yeah, de- all tra- violent deaths. Yeah, all tragically. Yeah. I find it interesting, too, speaking of kids and young people and, and, and uh, reading interviews with you, and you, you, there's another thing you lament, is that uh, this generation, and we don't want to sound like... Uh, crusty old men, but we will, <laughs> that, that, that this generation doesn't look back, that they won't watch a black and white picture, and, the, and that the movie experience itself has been cheapened. I mean, pa- movie palaces are gone. Well, the, it's all true. It's all unfortunately true. Movie palaces, I loved those. Way to, the way to see a movie was great. And uh, kids don't want to see black and white movies. I think one of the reasons is that they only see them on television or uh, you know, a small uh, screen. Mm-hmm. And one of the th- major things about movies is that they had to be bigger than life. They were on a big screen. And uh, so the minute it's reduced to a television uh, viewing, they lose a lot of the magic. Yeah. And they just, they, and the picture isn't as good because they're not seeing it the right way. And we've lost theaters. I mean, and now the Ziegfeld here in New York just closed, which was heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, I don't know why that closed. After so many years. You know, I, I call, remember when, when I, uh, when What's Up Doc was booked into the Radio City Music Hall in 1972, I called Carrie and I said, guess what, Carrie, my, my new picture's opening at the Radio City Music Hall. He said, oh, that's nice. I had 28 pictures play the hall. 28. 28 pictures? You see, all my pictures, all my pictures play the music hall. I'll tell you what you must do. When it opens, go down there, put on a raincoat and some sunglasses, and, well, you won't need that. But just stand, stand in the back. Stand in the back, and you listen, and you watch, while 6,500 people laugh at something you did. It will do your heart good. And I did, and it was the most extraordinary experience to see that, which we, we broke the house record two weekends in a row, and uh, the 30-year house record. 
And when you stood out, out on the street, you could hear them laughing. It was just amazing. And uh, standing in the back, as Carrie said, watching people, watching that whole Y orchestra laughing. People people don't just laugh. They move around. They heads bounce around. They they look like they're going to fall off their chair. It's, just, it's amazing. And it was the biggest kick of uh, my uh, seeing one of my pictures. And an additional compliment is that one of your heroes, uh, Howard Hawks, liked the picture too. Yeah. It was very funny because I told him, I said, we're going to steal some things from bringing up baby. He said, that's fine. Because he's always talked about stealing things. He said, oh, we, we stole that from they knew what they wanted. And um, he'd, he'd always say, we stole that, we stole that. So I said, I'm going to steal a few things from bringing up baby. So the script was written and I sent him the script and um, we, we're on the soundstage at Warner's getting ready to do a table read and I get and the AD comes over and he says Howard Hawks is on the phone on, at the, at the uh, stage I said really and the, audio, the, the cast goes oh Howard Hawks is on the phone oh, oh, oh. so I went over and answered the phone hello Howard Peter Howard Peter Howard, Peter, Howard. <laughs> well, I read you. I read you. That's what that happened. I don't know why. He said, "I read. I read your script." Well, what'd you think? Well, you didn't steal the dinosaur, which is a big element in bringing up baby. I said, well, right, I, couldn't, sure. I couldn't steal the dinosaur, Howard. It's much too much identified with bringing up baby. Yeah, I guess not. Well, you couldn't steal the. You didn't steal the leopard. Well, I couldn't do that, Howard. That's 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 uh, too much. Identify with bringing a baby. Yeah. Well, who have you got in it? I said Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. I know that they're not uh, Cary Grant and Catherine. You're damn right they're not. I said. He said, "Well, don't let them be cute." I said, "Okay, Howard. All right, boy." And then when the picture came out, I told everybody it was stolen from bringing up baby, and uh, Howard got a lot of kick out of that and uh, he went to South America and we went to Rio and he took pictures of the marquee of what's up doc for me which was very sweet what a compliment yeah he was he was great Howard was great he's very thrilled that the picture was a big hit what are you working on now Peter you doing some acting what, what I see on IMDB uh, a project called wait for me wait for me yeah I'm gonna do that Brett Ratner is gonna produce it and it's shot, it's, it's, it's a picture I've been working on for many years. It's a script I've been working on for many years. And I finally got it right, I think. And it's uh, the most ambitious picture I've ever made. Uh, it, it, plays in four, it plays in five cities in four different countries in Europe. And uh, it's a huge cast. It's about picture people. It's about a director, a director, actor star, somebody like Orson or Woody Allen or Cassavetti, somebody who does it all. And uh, he's been married six times and he's had six daughters. And several months before the movie starts, no, I'm sorry, several years before the movie starts, his last wife, his sixth wife, was killed in a plane crash along with two of his best friends. Uh, flying back from Grand Canyon, and there's a kind of mystery about what they were doing in Grand Canyon. Why did they go there in the first place? Was he was, was she having an affair? Or what was and 
Ever since that happened, our leading man, Charlie Benedict, has, has become persona non grata in Hollywood. He chopped up a projection room at Universal. He punched out a producer, two producers at Fox, and nobody will hire him. So he's been bullshitting the Italians. He's been traveling through Italy and Sicily for the last few months before the picture begins, looking for locations for a script he's supposedly writing, which he isn't writing. He's not no script. He has no idea. He's just bullshitting the Italians so they'll pay for his trip around the, where he's going. And he gets there, and they, they, they. Then his one of his daughters is dating a rock star, and she's disappeared. It, a lot of shit happens. And um, finally, he's so depressed that he goes, he's in Vienna, and he goes down to the Danube, and he looks like he's going to jump in and kill himself. And he hears the voice of his sixth wife. She says, don't do that, because if you do that, we won't see each other. And he turns, and there's the ghost of his sixth wife. And that's the beginning of that part of it. And then you ultimately there's six ghosts in the story, all wow. friendly, all friendly. It's a, it's a it's a comedy drama fantasy. There's some very sad things in it. A, a producer who read it recently, who a European producer is going to work with Brad and me on it, said it's a it's an emotional roller coaster, which is about it, I think. Yeah. And you wrote the screenplay as well. Yeah, I wrote the script. Yeah. Wait for me. We'll look for it. And uh, let, let me plug the books again. Uh, the, who, who the Devil Made It. You can get these books on Amazon. It's a, a wonderful read. Uh, also, Who the Hell's In It. Yeah, that has a lot. That's my actor's book. That's, yeah. got, that's got long chapters on Jimmy and uh, Jimmy Stewart and so, John Wayne. And, can't put either one of them down. And, and uh, Peter, this is, this is one of those interviews that we dream about because... It's it's one of those where after it's over, we haven't even scraped the surface of all the things yeah. we want to talk about. We decided to, to do a show about nostalgia and about old Hollywood, which is why we've had Bruce Stern and Roger Corman and, and Ed Asner and all of these people on the show. And we very early on in the process, we, look, we looked at each other and said, well, Peter Bogdanovich, that's a no-brainer. So we didn't think we'd get you, and here you are. So we're very oh, grateful. Very, very grateful. Shall, shall I tell you one more story? At the Please. End of this? <laughs> tell you a Jimmy Stewart story. Okay. Okay. <laughs> because Jimmy and I were talking about, I was interviewing him for that Esquire piece, and uh, we were talking about movies. And we said, we were saying, what is it about the movies that makes them so goddamn special? And Jimmy said, well, I'll tell you, I was shooting a picture, a Western in Colorado, and uh, there were some people watching a shooting, and uh, this uh, older fella comes up to me and he says, are you Stuart? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, said, he said, you said a poem once in a picture. That was good. Oh, I said, thank you. And that's all he said. And he walked away. And I, I knew just what he was talking about. I, there was a scene in a bar, and I said a poem. It must have been 15, 20 years ago. Just a short scene, and he'd remembered it all these years. And I thought, now that, that's the wonderful thing about the movies. Because if, you've, if you're lucky... 
and uh, and uh, you've got you're lucky enough to have a personality that comes across, and and God helps you, and you work hard. What you're doing then is you're giving people little, little tiny pieces of time that they never forget. Isn't that a great? That's wonderful. And that wow. is that why you called your book "Pieces of Time"? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Well, I thought I thought it was a great uh, story. You know, I mean, a great a great analysis of movies. It is. Thanks for that, sharing that one with us. Okay. And, and you're such an accomplished mimic, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Who knew? You know, it's very funny. I, I I went on Johnny Carson a few times, but one time I did a story about Jimmy, and I told the story, and I did did the, the impression. So the next day, I've got chutzpah, you know. I called Jimmy, and I said, did you see me on Carson last night? And Jimmy goes, pretty good, Peter, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> pretty good, Peter. So he'd give you. Yeah. So I should, I should start wrapping up. I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. We've once again recorded at Nutmeg Post with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. And we have been listening for the past, I don't know how long, with the great Peter Bogdanovich. The ultimate movie lover. That's me. This was a treat for us, Peter. We can't thank you enough. You've made a, a, a great you. contribution to the show. Well, I'm glad. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. Say it's only a paper moon Sailing over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Yes, it's only a canvas sky Hanging over a cotton tree it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me With all your love, it's a honky-tonk hooray With all your love, it's a melody played in a penny arcade It's a Barnum and Bailey world, just as hollow as it can be but it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. If you believed in me